Today's episode is brought to you by Chiropractic Mastery. Wouldn't it be great if your spinal problems and misalignments could correct themselves? And if you didn't need the same thing done to you every time you visit the office, best of all, what if your chiropractor could check and tell when your body didn't need any help that day at all? MCT chiropractors correct nervous system imbalances directly so the body is best able to correct the spinal misalignment on its own. This is done without twisting, popping, cracking, or causing pain. It's so honoring to the body that most people experience a tremendous amount of improvement very quickly, often without the soreness and stiffness that may follow a more traditional chiropractic adjustment. Your chiropractor can find out more by visiting chiropracticmastery.com and checking the seminars tab. And if you're looking for a chiropractor that will custom build the most painless yet effective chiropractic adjustment for you on every visit to the office, go to chiropracticmastery.com and click on the referrals tab. Hey everyone, and welcome to the KiddoCast for Chiropractic Families, the world's first and only podcast committed to normalizing complementary and alternative care, particularly chiropractic care for children by sharing the experiences of the doctors in the trenches. In our time together, we will talk with pillars in the alternative healthcare world to give you the tools you'll need to make positive change in the health of your children today. Simply put, we're here to change the trajectory of modern healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Bronstein. I'm a pediatric and family chiropractor certified by the Academy Council of Chiropractic Pediatrics and the director of the Beacon Clinic of Chiropractic in beautiful Grover Beach, California. Now today, uh, we have my good friend, Marty Cook, all the way from Amsterdam. Marty is a chiropractor. He's a practitioner of sacro-occipital technique. He's also got a master's degree in um, pediatrics, and he's going to bring a lot of really interesting content to the podcast. I'm really excited to release this interview from back in 2018 because Marty um, and I, we think alike. Uh, Marty, you know, practices a lot of chiropractic neurology. And so we're going to get into a lot of that heady stuff and really, really dig deep. So I really, really hope you guys enjoy this interview from 2018. And um, without any further ado, here's Marty Cook. All right, guys, back at it for the second part of our two pack today on beautiful Friday. Uh, it's uh, April 5th. Um, I'm here with uh, my good buddy, Marty uh, Cook. It's been a long time since Marty and I have been together. I think it's probably been about nine years that I was in Amsterdam last year. I believe so. Yeah. Maybe eight. It was 2011. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be back uh, in August of this year. I'm looking forward to it, but I asked Marty to be on the podcast because um, in addition to all the amazing chiropractic work he's doing, the traditional chiropractic work he's doing, he's working towards his master's in pediatrics and uh, he's doing some pretty intensive neurological type work uh, with, with kids in his offices. And I, I wanted somebody who has expertise uh, post-grad expertise in this to come on the cast and talk to parents. So, uh, Marty, first of all, thanks for joining us from eight hours away. I appreciate that. Um, no problems at all. <laughs> why don't you, uh, why don't you start by telling everybody a little bit about you and, um, what you do, and then let's sort of spin off from there. Okay. Okay, great. Well, thanks for having me on and thanks for that amazing intro. Um, I, uh, I kind of feel like I'm just one of the chiropractors that is in the trenches doing their thing every day and don't necessarily see myself as doing really anything different or anything to what we all should be, um, what we all should be doing. But uh, my chiropractic started really uh, as a patient when I was uh, 13, typical story, hurt my back, uh, couldn't, couldn't really walk and ended up uh, seeing a chiropractor and that led me into chiropractic college in Australia. 
went to RMIT, graduated there in 2006, spent a year working in Australia and then decided to, uh, to travel the world a bit and found myself eventually in Amsterdam and, and haven't left. Um, and very quickly, I, I, I really found a, a passion for kids and babies, um, uh, particularly through SOT and more recently, some of the more functional neurology that's being um, created. Hmm. So, so, so talk to us about, about SOT. Um, as I talked to you in our little pre-chat, I know nothing or almost nothing about mm -hmm. SOT other than what I was taught at LACC, which might as well be nothing. Um, but I got to see you and your previous mentor do a lot of this work when I saw you last and uh, it was fascinating. So, so talk a little bit about what, what it stands for, what it means, how you can help patients with it and let's go from there. Yeah, SOT was um, uh, developed by uh, Major Dijanet, and he was both an osteopath and a chiropractor. Um, and he basically merged two separate or two separate um, professions into into what he thought was the best way of of helping patients. Um, he also invented the color photo processor and sold it to Kodak, and uh, made a lot of money off that. So he was able to really develop his technique by seeing lots of patients and not having to charge for it. Um, and from there, uh, SOT grew and grew and grew. And uh, many uh, other chiropractors started wanting to know. So he ended up teaching it, of course. And now SOT is a, a quite a commonly used technique throughout Australia, but also uh, throughout Europe. Um, and it's the thing I like about it is it's super gentle. Um, so you can really use it on anyone. Uh, it does have the manual adjusting in it. There are some people believe SOT does no manual adjusting, but there is manual adjusting in SOT. It's in the manuals, it's in the teachings, but it's one of those things that you can choose to utilize or not. Um, so when it comes to helping kids and um, adjusting with appropriate forces and things, uh, it, it becomes a technique that is super useful and super appropriate uh, for all, all age groups of people. Can you... Can you lay out what an SOT procedure looks like um, for anybody who's coming in? And the reason that I bring this up is because typically when people are, are exposed to chiropractic, they're exposed to big high velocity adjustments that make a lot of noise. And when it comes to taking care of kids, um, obviously that's not the way any of us work, um, mm -hmm. but, but SOT is a little bit different. So a patient coming into your clinic may see this and go, well, that's not what I was expecting. Why don't, why don't you lay it out for everybody so they can figure it out? Yeah. So SOT, um, when, when assessing the, the, the adult patient, at least, uh, posture analysis is, uh, plays a role. There's muscle testing um, that helps establish whether or not uh, someone's problem is an ascending problem. So beginning at the pelvis and moving up through the body. Um, or whether it's a descending problem, whether there's a cranial component that's causing a descending um, torque through the body and creating postural adaptations. Uh, and then from there, you can categorize the patients into category one, two, or three. Uh, three um, is, is more discogenic and uh, vertebral type problems, uh, subluxation, if you will, uh, in the lumbar spine versus category one versus more of your dural type problems. So dural torques uh, and cranial problems. And so when we look at kids more specifically, we look more towards that dural system. We look more towards the, the sacro-occipital pump system to help optimize their, their health, which is a big part of the SOT um, system.
Hmm. Um, so then the question becomes, if you're if you're employing SOT, which yeah. is low low to zero force, so there's a lot of blocking involved, right? Yes. Um, and you're studying all this work with with Robert Melillo, which is chiropractic neurology. How do yeah. the two how do the two intersect? Um, I've got a couple answers, a couple a couple answers that are to questions that I'm going to ask later, but I don't want to step on your yeah. toes because you're the expert. So, yeah. so how do the two work together? Um, and that's a really good question because that's something that I'm learning to uh, incorporate now. Uh, when I'm seeing kids, and I see a lot of kids with uh, learning disabilities, ADD, ADHD now. Um, and what I'm finding is that uh, a lot of these kids that are presenting with these developmental problems will also have very uh, specific areas of um, tension through their dural system, through the cranial system. And so it, it does complement each other. The, when you look at the functional neurology, when you look at uh, the cerebellum vestibular type things, there are, there are definite um, there are areas that I see gel quite nicely uh, with with both systems. Um, but again, it's it's something that because a lot of this developmental neurology is still um, developing, so to speak, the understanding of it is growing, incorporating it into the practice and knowing exactly what's going to work when you combine the two is very much a, a clinical experience based thing. Uh, and that's something that I'm continuing to develop as as time goes on. So, so talk a little bit about your, your masters specifically, you know, what your thesis is, what you're working on, you know, how this is going to help, you know, children and families in the future. Yeah. So uh, I started my masters uh, almost three years ago at the ACC uh, in the UK and my master's thesis is on plagiocephaly actually and cranial adjusting. And this is where this is where the uh, where SOT comes into it quite nicely because cranial adjusting is a huge part of SOT. Um, and when it comes to kids with plagiocephaly, what we see is that kids respond what we believe to be even faster than what the standard um, of care provides at the moment. Um, and standards of care range from stretches of the neck and uh, uh, um, repositioning of the head and things like that for, for these kids. But when you can kind of incorporate the cranial components of SOT and specifically um, techniques that have been developed uh, further by uh, Dr. Steve Williams, um, Dr. Marty Rosen, these guys I'm sure you're probably familiar with. What we see is these, these cranial corrections really help uh, change the shape of a baby's skull a lot, lot faster than what, what we see where, uh, when we just give positioning. And so currently my, my master's is still, all the data is still being co um, collected, uh, but um, by the end of May, I'll have the results of that. And then following that, uh, we, we hope to continue the study and publish um, once we have enough. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's really funny. I just sent Steve a, a patient um, who uh, has a, a very specific defect called a cask defect. Um, there's only like a hundred or so of them in the whole world. And I, I'm seeing one of the kiddos right now in my clinic. Um, the mom belongs to a group and wanted to find another chiropractor who could potentially address some of these, these delays, um, yeah. neurological delays. Uh, and I couldn't think of anybody better where, you know, she is in Northampton yeah. than Steve. Um, yeah. 
you're talking about ADD and ADHD. Yeah. Um, we see a ton of these cases in my clinic as well. Um, I yeah. use a totally different approach as most of, uh, most of my listeners know. Um, what other types of things are you seeing other than your, your plagios and your ADHDs and your, your uh, ADDs? A lot of um, what's termed developmental coordination disorder. So I see a lot of kids with just poor, well, poor tone as infants and babies, but poor tone as uh, in older kids as well. So we're looking at the eight, nine, 10 year olds that come in and they, uh, they're clumsy. Uh, and when you do strength testing on them, they, you know, if you get them to try and do sit-ups, they've got no core tone at all. They've got no strength. Uh, and when you look back through their history, you start to see these common traits, plagiocephaly shortly after birth, um, uh, birth trauma, um, missing milestones, all these things that you start to put into this package of, okay, this started way back, potentially during uh, pregnancy. Uh, or shortly thereafter. And this is just the result of everything that wasn't corrected uh, previously. Okay, so I got a couple things that I was thinking of while you were talking about this. So yeah. birth trauma is a huge contributor to what we all see in our clinics. I was just giving a workshop on this last week. So it's apropos that you just brought this up. So thanks for that. Um, something like, I know Gutmann has his paper where he he, talked about something like 80% of births will end in a form of trauma uh, that contributes to something like subluxation, which is, you know, an alignment problem or a motion problem in the spine, or um, in your case, you'll see motion problems or motion artifacts in the cranium. Um, I think in my clinic, it's probably closer to 95%. I would say every yeah. single atlas subluxation that is chronic in my clinic comes from birth. Um, you know, and I, I was literally just talking to my good friend, Ian Stillman uh, from Florida before I got you on the blower, uh, Marty, we were talking about how birth is becoming almost unrecognizable because of how many generations that we've had that um, have employed augmentation in labor, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, going back yeah. to the 1950s, I mean, we had a very female-centric process. Men would go out and play golf. The women would surround themselves with other women, and they would kind of just wait you know, and call on the doctor when was necessary. And sometime between the 50s and 60s, everything changed. My understanding is that was kind of spawned by the the invention of things like birth control, yeah. where women essentially realized that they can control their own biological directives instead of just sort of waiting to have it happen. And since then, I mean, now we're 70 years later, things have, have kind of gotten off the rails. So yeah, birth trauma is absolutely real. It's a huge contributor. Um, so I, I, have, I practice an upper cervical technique. Yeah. I focus on Atlas, C2, and sometimes occiput, but very rarely. Um, if I do see an occiput, there's usually a sphenoid involved. And I do some cranial work as well. But um, what I find in my practice is if I can correct Atlas, I can correct C2, a lot of this other stuff goes away. Um, tell me how because you're way more knowledgeable in cranial sacral work than I am. I've taken a couple of Marty's courses, but that's it. Tell me how cranial faults can contribute to subluxations and vice versa. Okay. So um, this goes back to basically then how the, how the cranium actually moves. So there's, there's several pulses throughout the cranium, um, but the one that we can all associate easiest with is when we breathe out, 
there's a degree of, uh, of movement through the cranium. Um, and uh, this contributes to movement of the cerebrospinal fluid up and down the, 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 uh, the vertebral column. Um, but due to a cranial strain pattern, uh, so if, you're, if you've come through a traumatic birth or you have been uh, left sleeping too much with your head on one side and you create this um, torsion through the skull, um, the descending message is going down through the, through the, 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 the musculature of the neck uh, will cause uh, potentially restrictions, rotational complainants, subluxations, whatever you want to um, call that uh, in the child's neck and continue down through the body. So a lot of the time in SOT, when we see that there's no, um, when there's no pelvic component, um, then you look straight to the skull and see, okay, where, where are the subluxes or where are the, where are the skull restrictions that you're finding? Where's, where, the, where isn't the movement working properly? And then that will, by correcting that, you then correct not only the descending neurological messages, but also the, the movement of the cerebrospinal fluid throughout the skull. Hmm. Hmm. That... Yeah, no, for sure. It, it was a loaded question. Um, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm glad you answered it the way you do, because in the technique that I use, I use MC2. I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's, it, it, it starts with the same premise, I think, as SOT. Um, we talk about how subluxation is relational, not locational, which means yeah. we look for neurological inputs that bring certain cranial or supersegmental things to summation. Right. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, that could be an atlas, which is which is attached to a ton of muscles that have a bunch of 1A afferents that are really fast and they send a bunch of sensory inputs to the brain. Or it could be a big toe. Right? I, I just had this conversation with a, a gentleman that I'm taking care of yesterday. Um, he wanted to know why every time I adjust him, I'm adjusting his big toe on the right foot. Um, and the reason is we can get him like 99 percent of the way there by adjusting his spine. Yeah. And if we adjust anything else in his spine, we're going to completely melt his brain. But yeah. adjusting a toe sends a small amount of sensory input up to the cerebellum and it completely yeah. balances the remainder out. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, it seems like we're kind of on the same, same track here. Um, another thing that you talked about before that I want to go back to was hypotonia. Yeah. So I see a ton of kids with hypotonia because we see a ton of kids that are either on the spectrum or have sensory processing issues and they go hand in hand. Um, they also go hand in hand with uh, vestibular issues, which is what you also talked about. Um, yeah. Most of the time when I see my kids, I see them really early. Like parents will notice them around the ages of about 18 months to 24 months. Um, sometimes as early as 12 months when kids first start walking, it's this sort of clumsiness or this so-called cerebellar gait where everything is wide-legged and their balance is off. Um, but I don't see a lot of hypotonic patients that are older. And you were saying something about seeing kids that are older or teenagers that are hypertonic. Could you, hypotonic, could you explain how that works? Hypotonia, maybe I used the wrong word, but, um, I definitely see those babies that you talk about that, um, 
you pick them up and they're just floppy you know they don't have the the, the, the tone and the reflexes that should be there aren't um, and I see that more and more frequently and I've discussed at length with people of why we're seeing it more frequently maybe it's nutritional maybe it's due to the increased intervention during birth um, not activating the reflexes as as they come down the birth canal all these different um, theories but it's definitely on the increase uh, when we look at the older kids with poor tone, poor control, poor coordination. Um, and I guess I used uh, low tone broadly when I, when I discuss more of the fact that they're just uncoordinated. When I, when I get them to try and um, uh, do muscle testing, you know, they've just got, they don't have the strength through the body that they should. Um, and, you know, there's, there's neurological aspects, huge neurological aspects to that, that um, develop as a result of retention of those reflexes or um, as a result of cerebellar problems. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I see it a lot and I just, I, I haven't quite worked it out yet. I mean, I know it's there. I know I can find common things with, with these kids, but it's hard to put your finger on exactly what the initial trigger was. There's so many factors involved. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, it's, I agree with you that there's a lot of potential causes here. I would also agree with you that it's on the rise. I see it more often now uh, than I saw it even last year. Um, it tends to be a hallmark of sensory processing issues. At least it shows up a lot with my kids with true SPD or ADHD. Yeah. Um, certainly with my autistic children, they show usually unilateral hypotonia. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why, why it's increasing. Um, I, I think chiropractors are certainly on the forefront to figure this thing out because what I find is that, and this is no slam against these allied healthcare professionals, but what I find is that I'll get patients who've already been through physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. They have a child psychologist, they have a school psychologist, they're on IEP. Um, and they still have problems. And it's yeah. not to say that these cases can't be completely fixed, but there's a lot of things I think that are being missing. You talked about primitive reflexes, and that's one of the things that I think is being glossed over quite a bit. Or on the other side, there's one, there's, there's one office in my community where everybody has the same retained primitive reflexes, no matter what type of kid they are. Um, yeah. so they all have a Babinski, they all have a Moro, they all have an ATNR, and it's like, okay, so we need somebody who's a little bit more discriminating to actually figure out what's going on neurologically. Primitive yeah. reflexes are funny because we know by the blueprint, most of them should be gone in about four months, plus or minus, right? Mm -hmm. Some will last longer. I know a symmetric tonic neck reflex can last as long as 15 months in some cases, depending on which author you read. But by and large, the big ones that I'm looking for are gone in, in about four months. Yeah. I still see kids in their school age or adolescence who have retained unilateral moral reflexes. I see kids with retained galant reflexes all the time, especially my sensory kids. Um, I see massive ATNR problems too, which goes all the way back to birth trauma. We can correlate that to Atlas issues from in utero. Um, yeah. So how, how do you fix that? I'm curious, how do you fix that in your office? I, uh, I mean, I'm still a, a traditional chiropractor at heart, so I still do my SOT work and um, I do a full SOT workup with them and, and adjust them SOT. But now what I'm incorporating more and more is uh, Steve Williams' cranial work, uh, where um, the combination of uh, adjusting cranials at the same time as stimulating the reflex seems to have a huge input to the brain. Um, while uh, and more recently, I've also incorporated um, um, 
Rob Melillo's work uh, on hemisphericity, uh, looking at um, asymmetries through through the uh, through the body, looking at low tone. You talk about unilateral uh, problems of tone. That's a that can be a, a huge hemisphericity problem. Uh, and then using the methods he has he has uh, uh, developed to help stimulate the various parts of the brain on the on the weaker side. Um, seems to be very effective in, in removing primitive reflexes. And it's even in the seminars that he hosts and things, we've had dramatic results with people just in one or two sessions. Um, but in practice, of course, it takes a bit longer. I've, um, I've been giving uh, lots of exercises um, to patients as well. Uh, and but get it, I think a lot of the time it's harder it's harder to treat the parent than it is to look after the kid because the parents don't always, uh, they're not always as enthusiastic about doing things as home, at home as, pos as possible. So I've looked for different ways, whether it's kids using blue or red lenses, whether it's they're using a TENS machine at home, things that are easy for them to do while they're doing other things versus, um, you know, saying you have to do 30 repetitions of this and the parents has to stand over them and it takes the parents time as well. I mean, the parents should be, should be on board, but sometimes it's difficult to get that consistency with them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, you know, I find that when I do neuro, um, neurosensory reintegration work, I um, kind of have to make stuff up <laughs> yeah, as we go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the hardest thing for me to reintegrate by far is a moral response because the kids who have retained moral responses are the sickest. Um, these yeah. are kids who are, are severely autistic. These are the kids with severe sensory processing or anxiety issues. Um, yeah. And getting somebody to lie on their backs and do things like this, uh, just... Yeah. Yeah, for those of you guys who can't see the visual, essentially what, you know, the, the, the textbook for what I use to reintegrate a moral response is to lie somebody on their backs. Mom or dad will have them cross their arms and their legs and then have them pull their arms out kind of like in a, um, like a starfish pattern and then cross in the other direction and just keep going uh, for maybe 10, 15, 20 reps. But when you have a really severely autistic kid with a really, really significant moral response, that vestibular system is so shot lying on their back is going to fry their brain. So exactly. we have to, uh, we have to be really careful about, about how we, how we do those things. Um, okay. You talked about hemisphericity. I've also not yeah. talked about hemisphericity on this podcast too. And I want to talk about this because, uh, I think, um, it, first of all, it's one of the things that I'm going to talk about ad nauseum at autism one this year, because we're using a, a reactive leg check as an assessment tool and taking care of autistic kids and hemisphericity shows up a lot in leg length inequality. Um, so describe to all the parents uh, who are listening who may not know anything about neuroscience what a hemisphericity is and maybe what it would look like in one of their children. Yeah, so hemisphericity is basically, or simply put, is when one side of the brain seems to have developed better than the other side. Um, so you can have a right hemisphericity or a left hemisphericity. So you can be have a, an underactive, if you want to look at it like that, right brain or an underactive left brain or underactive both sides, uh, if you're really unlucky. Uh, and what, what we see is that kids with uh, retained primitive reflexes will... Uh, there'll be one of they'll, the, the, the retained primitive reflexes become a contributing factor to why that hemisphericity has developed. They act like a, a block to normal neurological uh, development. And 
if if those are left there, then your vestibular systems, your cerebellar system, or your or your higher functioning systems don't get a chance to to fully develop in a normal way. And now, of course, the kid can still move around, but um, you start to see traits of if your right brain um, is if if you yeah, if you have a right hemisphericity, then your right brain is working a little bit lower than the left so you have an if you want an almost an overactive left brain which means you're going to have traits of adhd you're going to have traits of um uh, almost autistic like traits sometimes um versus if you've got a, a left hemisphericity so your left side is low your your right side um is then dominant and so you have more language problems. You have more uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, because those language centers predominantly sit in that left side of the brain. So if they're not being activated, they're not functioning properly, they, this is gonna come out later on um, when kids are, are trying to learn. And you know what this looks like is a disruptive child or a child that can't learn properly. Uh, and when looking at your child, you know, there are simple tests you can do and you know, doing, doing uh, the, primitive reflex testing may be a bit much for some parents to go through, but just looking at your child and seeing is one eye, does it look like one eye is bigger than the other? Is there increased uh, folds on the, the nasolabial folds? Is the head tilted to one side? Is the shoulder dropped? Is the, is the arm turned in? Is the knee turned in? These are looking for tonal changes, which will give us an idea of hemisphericity as well. Awesome. Yeah, it's um, it's good stuff. It's funny because you know I talk to other chiropractors and it's we're kind of just sitting here nodding our heads at each other like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. we see the exact same stuff. Um, yeah. But but still, you know, the podcast has been on the air now for almost three years. We've had shoot by the time this airs, 37, 38 interviews with with crazy experts. I mean, I've been privileged to hear a lot of people talk about pediatrics, but we all kind of have the same same things to say. And yeah. it means that the standard of care is well established, regardless of the technique or the approach. Um, and it's a huge potential option for parents who are really searching. Um, obviously, you know, Marty and I both could speak from experience on this. We would like to see your kids before there's a problem, but don't feel like it ever is too late to take your kiddo to a chiropractor, especially one who knows pediatrics. Um, and even beyond that, somebody who knows the neuroscience like, uh, like Marty is as well. So uh, Marty, Thanks, man. That was awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know no it's late problem. out there. Um, how do people get a hold of you all the way out there? Yeah, the best way is uh, by my website. I have two practices. The first one is uh, www.chiropraxy. So it's the word chiropractic, but with an E on the end instead of a C. Uh, castricum, C-A-S-T-R-I-C-U-M. Uh, .nl, uh, or nl. Awesome. All right, guys. So if you're in Amsterdam, uh, you're anywhere in the Netherlands, uh, this is a guy for you guys to see. And uh, for now, that's pretty much it. Marty, thank you so much. And uh, I'll talk to you all very soon. Okay. Take care.